how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. As a kid, I was so moved by these things, said author Christopher Vogler about the world of cinema. What made stories so exciting, he asked himself. Eventually, this led him to film school at USC, where he encountered some of the idea of Joseph Campbell, particularly The Hero with a Thousand Faces. This collection broke down the universal motif of adventure that runs through essentially all of storytelling. Bogler took this idea to heart and turned it into a seven-page memo that summarized the hero's journey. This went viral in Hollywood, at the time by fax machines. The memo led Vogler to a job at Disney, working on The Lion King. Over the years, he's worked on other films such as 101 Dalmatians, Fight Club, Courage Under Fire, Volcano, and The Thin Red Line. You can also find a version of this interview on Creative Screenwriting's website. As a kid, I was uh, fascinated. Uh, grew up in Missouri on a farm most of the time and, you know, uh, was so moved by these things. And I mean, physically moved, uh, emotions, feeling in my body, that sort of thing. I needed to know what was going on that made movies so uh, attractive and exciting to me, stories. And um, so I just followed that trail. And uh, really the, the pathway led me to film school at USC, where I encountered the ideas of Joseph Campbell just because uh, I was commenting on a film we had seen in a film noir class. And the professor said, uh, well, you've mentioned uh, that you see mythological signs in this movie. So um, maybe you should take a look at this thing, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. So I went to the school library and checked it out and kind of flipped through it on the bus on the way home. And by the time I got home, I said, this is it. This is what I was looking for. This is the sort of secret code. Uh, this is the, what we would call today, the algorithm uh, for generating stories that are sort of psychologically realistic uh, and yet uh, maybe aspirational or dealing with um, 
the human desire to be good or be better and um, you know sometimes failing so uh, it was really by that discovery that the whole thing started and then I started working for the studios as a story analyst or a reader evaluating the scripts other people had written and using this uh, outline of Campbell's where he looked at many many old myths and distilled them into a kind of a super outline where he said, you know, the, the essence of this is going to probably be found in almost every story, and certainly every myth and legend and fairy tale. And um, I got to test that on thousands and thousands of examples at a little bit of a distance because I wasn't writing them, I was evaluating them. So it gave me a kind of unique perspective and uh, allowed me to test out Campbell's ideas and see all the variations in them and the differences between what he was talking about, which was psychology and ancient myths and legends, and what I was addressing, which was modern stories. So uh, there were some distinctions, and that's what I really did in my work, uh, writing first a, a short seven or eight page memo that went all around the studios explaining how Campbell's ideas could be used in modern storytelling. And that sort of spread virally uh, by the primitive means at the time of uh, uh, fax machines and Xeroxes. But it went all over Hollywood and, and just kind of stuck in the brain as, uh, 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 okay, this is a good, useful set of ideas. And uh, it was quickly accepted. And that led to working at Disney and working on The Lion King and some other uh, projects there because they were open to it at that time. And uh, it seemed new and fresh to them. So uh, it was a, a good uh, timing for me. What was it like at that time? Like, was it just like a positive thing of like, oh, well, now we kind of have a formula. If something's missing, maybe we can figure out the problem here. Or was it like, were there a lot of movies that didn't work being made at the time? What was it kind of like as far as what was coming out that year? Well, um, I would say there was pushback uh, right away. Um, because some people are leery, and this is good, they're leery in general of any kind of system or structure or set of rules or guidelines or anything, and that's fine. And I really endorse that because I think in your creative process, you tap all of those possibilities. Uh, you look at uh, models and paradigms, you may be uh, set out with the intention to break them or disturb them in some way, which is great. Um, you know, that's my basic reaction to all this is uh, the formulas, if you want to call them that, I don't, but if, if you want to call it a formula, it works uh, because the audience knows it very well and they recognize it. But what they really like is for you to break it somehow. Mm -hmm. So every time you set out, and I would say almost every scene, you're aware of what the audience has been trained to expect by seeing thousands of almost cookie cutter examples. So you subvert that somehow. You find, you always try to find some way to do it differently, leave out something, uh, overemphasize something, double up something, uh, subtract something from the design uh, to make people go, I, what was that? I never saw that before and see it for the first time, which is great. So is it the majority of the time 
this is followed or is it always followed? Like, do you see it in, I think you mentioned Pulp Fiction in your book. Do you also see it in like Christopher Nolan's film, which are famously out of order based on timeline? Is it just a different order? Like what, is it always a rule for most films? Well, um, you know, here's the thing is that uh, one of two things happens. Either the filmmaker is consciously tracking these things and uh, checking all the mm -hmm. time as kind of a map that, you know, maybe they look at it before they start and they kind of do in their outline uh, a, a rough approximation of it. Then they go in and they dive in creatively and uh, let go of all that, which is highly desirable. You, you want to be in a state of writing where you're following the story, you're following the characters, you're not thinking about those things, but at some point it's appropriate to come back and check that map, so to speak, uh, again. Um, you know, one of the great, I think, illustrations of how to do this is in the work of Darren Aronofsky, who um, as an independent filmmaker, you know, you would think this is a guy who doesn't have any rules that he follows because everything he does is so uh, groundbreaking and surprising. But uh, in fact, he's a student of the hero's journey. He's uh, come to me and we've talked quite a lot about uh, these patterns and he embraces them, but he uses them as I've just described. At the beginning, he kind of gets a rough outline so he knows, okay, where are we trying to navigate to generally? Uh, and then he forgets all about it for a long period of time, but then he might come back later and check, did we uh, articulate all of these points, which I think are necessary for uh, really communicating with the audience. You know, you have to tell me what's at stake. You have to tell me what the hero wants and what the hero deeply needs. You have to let the audience know somehow what the polarization is within the world. Uh, what are the forces struggling in the hero's world and inside the hero? So uh, those things um, need to be present and, and uh, uh, articulated to some extent. So it's good to check back and see that you've uh, you've done all that. It seems like if nothing else, even if they're maybe they're not in the first couple of drafts of the script, that the writer knows what they are. That seems to be the important thing first, and then figuring out how to present those in a way to to the viewers. Yeah, you know, as a uh, consultant and someone who has coached a lot of writers, uh, what I try to do is look at what they've done so far and figure out what are they trying to do? You know, they may have said, I wanna create a spooky tone and uh, I wanna scare the pants off you. And then I look through and realize um, either they have missed that mark somehow or they missed opportunities to do that. And um, that's a lot of what I do is pointing out, you know, you've got it set up here that uh, this uh, unknown, force is uh, approaching the hero and then you sort of forgot about it for a minute. Then let's come back and bring life into that thread. Um, so sometimes I'm fishing around with the writer trying to uh, find out their, their intention and bring it to, you know, its greatest uh, expression. Uh, so yeah, I, I try to try to help them get where they were uh, trying to, to go to and people, you know, you get lost in the process of writing and sometimes lose sight of your intentions. 
where do you start to go beyond, um, like, so I'll read a little bit about what was on your first memo, I believe. And it's like the hero is introduced in the ordinary world where he receives the call to adventure. He's reluctant at first to cross the first threshold where he eventually in- encounters tests, allies, and enemies, uh, reaches innermost cave. These are kind of just some points you hit there. When you're talking to someone like that, do you also, do you go beyond that to maybe look, like it's a sub genre. You mentioned horror. Let's say you're, they're making a horror movie or maybe even more specific than that, they're making a doppelganger horror movie. Do you find different rules in each niche? Like how do you um, kind of, do you see the hero's journey changing for, per genre? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the uh, simple things is that um, some of the genres uh, subvert the ordinary rules. Uh, and certainly horror does that because we're trained generally to expect that the hero will beat the monster and figure everything out and solve the problem. And horror, you know, one branch of horror is to say, if you believe that you're a fool and an idiot and you're doomed to be killed by the monster uh, because, you know, there are no heroes or there's a kind of a cynical view of of the world. And um, that's fun to work with because, uh, like I say, you've, you've sort of flipped the expected pattern on its head. Uh, comedy can do that too. Comedy can be subversive and can set you up to expect one kind of hero, one kind of outcome, and then show you that that's not realistic. Or in this case, uh, the hero maybe is thought of as a hero by everybody else, but in uh, her own mind, she's she's not. Uh, so you know, it, it's uh, it's great to find things like that where you can uh, work with the audience's training and expectation, uh, but find ways to subvert that. Is there also the opposite of that happening? Like, so there's, it's October. Uh, there's a new Halloween movie out every couple of years. A new Halloween movie out. It's usually Mike Myers versus Jamie Lee Curtis in some fashion. Um, are they both on their own journey, or is it just her story? I mean, he typically lives. Like, do you see two parallel journeys happening at the same time in movies like that? Yes, um, you know that's uh, I think a, a very good uh, rule of thumb or way to address things, uh, both from the point of view of the uh, director, the writer, but also uh, I think a lot about the actors. And a lot of my work has been uh, with the actors in the back of my mind because I did a little acting early in my career. And I, uh, I feel for them, it's sort of a rule that whatever character they're playing, the smallest role, which only has one line or maybe just hand somebody some change. In that actor's mind, it's a movie about a guy who hands somebody some change. You know, it's not a movie about a hero who saves the day. It's, it's, uh, it's not about finding the murderer. It's about this guy who does this very important job of handing some change. And, um, you know, the actors work very hard to create a whole reason why they're there that day and what happened to them this morning. And, you know, they try to bring a story into it, no matter how small their part is. And, uh, and I embrace that. So I'd say every character in the story is on their own hero's journey. You may just be seeing one moment of it when a door opens and closes, but that person is definitely uh, on their own uh, path and uh, going through some kind of 
crisis. So uh, I, I, I like these kind of films like you've just described. In Hollywood, that, that's called a two-hander, mm -hmm. where the writer is sort of leaving it to the audience to decide who is the movie really about. And uh, writers will sometimes be kind of even-handed between the villain and uh, the hero. Uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs is like that. Is it about uh, Hannibal Lecter or is it about Clarice Starling? Um, and it's really the clash of those two together that makes it uh, makes it exciting. And and that struggle, you know, really within the script, even there's a struggle uh, for power for who who is this really about? And that creates a great tension, and the audience enjoys that. And just to, I think I've heard you say as well, it's not just the full journey, kind of like you're saying, it's also a piece of the journey. If we see a fireman heroically carrying someone out, it's in our DNA to relate to that. So that's why we, uh, usually you can see a movie poster and kind of know what it's about and that type of thing. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect of it that you find um, in Campbell, there's a term, fancy uh, term called iconography, which means you know, what do simple pictures, one frame pictures can communicate a whole story. That was a belief in the ancient world. So when they made a vase painting or carved a statue or something, they were taking a snapshot, so to speak, of a specific moment in a long story. And you were supposed to uh, provide all the rest of the context for it by your knowledge of myths and so on. And I think we do that automatically as uh, viewers. You look at a single frame and um, you automatically construct a beginning time before that and a follow-up after it. Uh, you, uh, we're pretty good at interpreting uh, things like that. And um, I love that in films where uh, something can be distilled down to a single look or a single shot. And with that shot, you get, you know, the, the equivalent of eight pages of dialogue uh, just out of uh, one thing. There was a thriller years ago called Red Rock West and um, a little independent film, but it had a great opening scene where uh, a drifter guy goes to work on a construction site and he is filling out the forms to get hired and he's left alone in the office for a minute and he sees the cash register is open with bills in it and you just see him look at it and he doesn't do anything but you know from that look and from the shot of the bills he probably just got out of prison he probably was a thief he probably was tempted before and he's tempted now but he's not going to do it he's trying to go straight and there's not a light of dialogue about that but it just comes to you and i love that uh that that kind of storytelling that kind of screenwriting is the highest form when when you tell stories with images that way uh that's that's real screenwriting there, so I know you've had some different types of jobs uh, all around Hollywood and as an author. Um, on the back of your book, it mentions Aladdin, Lion King, 101 Dalmatians, Fight Club, Volcano. Is there any uh, big example where you kind of remember having some conversations that changed the plot of a story based on your research in the hero's journey? 
yeah, there's there's no question about that. And I take a lot of pride in that. Um, you know, I'm usually not going to turn over the whole wagon. Right. Uh, but sometimes I will put a sticker in the window <laughs> you know, or uh, 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 hang up a rifle rack in the back window or something like that. I, I, I have an instinct sometimes to uh, point out, like I said, opportunities that maybe they've missed um, or things that I just feel need to be there. And in The Lion King, there were a couple of incidents like that. Uh, one is near the beginning where they do the Circle of Life musical number and they introduce that world and the baby lion is held up by the shamanic baboon and he shows everybody. And they had already animated the whole sequence in color and it was totally done in the can when I saw it. And I said, you know, what would be cool is if a shaft of light came out of the cloud just at the climax when he holds the baby up and lights up the baby. And there was a physiological, physical reaction in that crowd of animators sitting around with their notepads. They all kind of shivered and they started drawing that scene and they stopped production and they put in the shaft of light because they just couldn't deny that would be better. So there's a few things like that uh, in, in The Lion King. Later, there's a scene where um, I said, we need to show the bad effects of Scar, the villain, taking over, that it wouldn't just be he'd be cruel and, and march everybody around. The land would actually start to decline because he's neglecting the balance. And I, I said, so you got to have a water hole drying up or something like that. And they put that in. Um, and it even survived into the stage musical where they did a magical thing, the kind of stage magic or simple film magic that I like. Uh, they put a uh, circle of blue parachute silk on the floor to represent on stage, to represent the pond that the animals came to drink at. And they had drilled a hole in the stage and stitched a little string to the middle of this piece of fabric. And somebody under the stage simply pulled it from below so the water hole slowly shrunk and then disappeared hmm. and you know no lights no special effects no lasers just simple stage magic and and i i really appreciated that it lasted that it stuck that it uh you know became transformed into this really magical thing so i, I take a lot of pleasure in that now, do you see that as mainly just highlighting um, these major key elements with something external or godlike? Is that kind of the idea behind some of that? Well, you know, there's there's a theory. Um, again, fancy word was uh, the, the the objective correlative. I think it's called. And what that means is um, it's a film theory term. And what that means, I think, is that if something's going on in the story, and Hitchcock used to do this, he would look for some physical object that expressed it. Uh, if they had a secret, he would give them um, a, a statue or a roll of microfilm or something. And he would never tell you what was on it because it didn't matter. All that mattered was that it has something on it that bad guys want, the good guys are trying to protect it, and it gets tossed back and forth. But it gave it this physicality. So a lot of times I look for that in a script is can you find 
something that represents the hero's uh, memories of the past or his regrets about something, you know, uh, put something in their hand, something physical uh, that, that is a link to their past trauma uh, or something that represents their hopes for the future or some connection they have with somebody. Uh, I'm doing a lot of thinking lately about gifts in movies. Mm -hmm. And this is partly by observation of one of Aronofsky's films, The Wrestler, mm -hmm. where there's a very elaborate exchange of gifts. The wrestler is uh, uh, flirting with the idea of maybe settling down with a stripper. And um, he is also having trouble relating to his daughter who he's ignored over the years. So the stripper helps him find a gift, birthday gift for the daughter. He gives a gift of a toy for the stripper's little boy uh, and they go back and forth. Mm -hmm. And those gifts become glue that bonds those characters together. And the gifts express a desire to remain in connection with somebody. Mm -hmm. So it just made me think a whole different way about uh, that simple act of handing something to somebody, uh, giving them something to carry with them. And it's in the fairy tales and the myths. Uh, there'll often be uh, a little exchange like that. And uh, it usually isn't much at the time, but later in the story, it becomes very important. So uh, I, I, I like to look for things like that, physical expressions. You've got this depth of knowledge. This is the 25th anniversary edition. I think it's the fourth edition. I mean, I watch a lot of films. I feel like 95% of the time I know what's going to happen. Are you still enjoying films? Do you see enough there? Like what's kind of, I think you mentioned the shape of water in this latest edition is something that stood out, but what really stands out to you with this knowledge you have? Like, are you still surprised by films? Well, um, you know, it is a little bit annoying to watch a film with me because um, I, I do uh, follow the clues and the little cues that uh, directors will give you. If they want you to have a thing in the back of your head of doubt about a character, sometimes they'll light them a certain way and uh, the ordinary viewer might not notice that, but I'm very tuned to it. So I see, you know, he had a shadow across his face. I bet you he's at least a suspect, if not the killer. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that turns out usually to be true. But what really thrills me is when I, I confront something and I say, uh, okay, there's a problem here. And I know there's only four ways to do this, four ways to get out of this problem. Uh, and then we come to it and they didn't do any of those four things. They did the fifth thing or the sixth thing. Uh, a good example <clears throat> was in the end of the old Sopranos show, uh, Tony Soprano has killed his nephew and he feels very guilty about it. And he has to confess as a Catholic, he's got that in him. He wants to be a good man. He wants to get it off his chest. So who is he going to confess to? His wife, his priest, his psychiatrist, his son, his friend. You know, you go through the whole list of people he could confess to. And in the end, he goes out to the desert and gets high uh, <laughs> and uh, wakes up in the morning when the sun's coming up and he confesses to the sun. Mm. And that just blew me away because I didn't see that coming. And I just thought that was uh, realistic for him. 
um, that he needed to get it off his chest and he was a kind of grandiose person. So that sort of was uh, fitting to him rather than telling some mere human being, he was speaking to God. And, and that was pretty cool because I didn't see it coming. We've, as we many talked about films, except for The Sopranos now, um, typically when you see the hero's journey in television, is it just like, is it typically a single season? Is it also a full series? How do you kind of see it play out in some of those ways? Well, I always thought of this as um, sort of fractal, meaning that it, uh, the pattern works from the smallest level of uh, a single frame mm-hmm. can tell you uh, where we're coming from, where we're going, um, but you can also see the pattern uh, through a whole half hour sitcom episode, through an hour. So yeah, it, 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 uh, it's flexible like an accordion and you can expand it and it can cover um, uh, the, the whole run of something very long like the Odyssey in the old days mm-hmm. uh, is a very long complex story. Um, and I, I think one way, and this is a huge subject, really, mm-hmm. we could do a whole thing on just this, um, about how you construct these long arcs. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think if you're going to do a five-year show that's going to run that long, you want to know roughly where you're going. You want to have plotted out some kind of a uh, high point and low point within that where uh okay my scheme to create drugs in my van has suddenly taken off and now i'm a big tycoon of drugs and then it crashes uh maybe in the third or fourth season and then will the hero uh, reclaim his family and so forth in the end Uh, but there's also another structure that is like a cycle uh, or a, a series of of circles where you go through a complete journey maybe for one character or one level of an organization in the first season and then the next season you move up the ladder uh, or you deal with uh, everybody's family life after for one season exploring the business world then you go into their families and then you go into their background and you go deeper and deeper uh, and, and, and sort of have this menu of things you're going to address in the back of your mind. So I, I think this is one way to go about uh, sustaining a, a long series, but each one of those parts can express itself as a complete and satisfying hero's journey. And you could kind of, and I do sometimes, I'll watch uh, two or three seasons of something and know that it's gonna go on, but I got what I needed out of it and, and maybe can sample something else. Right. Yeah. I've seen that too. Uh, we'll just do maybe one or two more. I think we're coming up on time. Um, so, so one thing people were worried about, I guess, when this memo was so popular is that people can get too formulaic and that type of thing. Are there misconceptions about the hero's journey or is it just that um, use it as a guideline, but still make it an actual story, still focus on character? What else should they be doing? And then what should they be worrying about, I guess? Yeah, people were um, suspicious of it as a, for reasons I've mentioned, but um, also tended to uh, get it right away when I started talking to studio executives about it and producers and directors. Uh, some people said, yeah, yeah, I, I, oh, that's absolutely right for certain genres mm-hmm. only. And they would say, of course, it works for 
you know, adventures and things like that. But it doesn't work for comedy. You got to find some other thing for comedy or it doesn't work for a, a family drama or a tearjerker or something like that. Um, and I maintain very strongly, yes, it does, uh, that this is a universal uh, pattern that everybody recognizes. And it does, as you suggested, it takes different forms um, for the different genres. Um, but it's, uh, it's uh, something that's so adaptable that um, I see it every place. Mm -hmm. And I don't have any trouble uh, making those adjustments for the, uh, the, the different genre requirements. So I usually ask people like advice on breaking in the industry um, where you're coming in as maybe more of a scholarly view. Would you give, if you were to uh, teach a course or assign homework to someone who's got a first draft done, what might that be based on the hero's journey? Well, you know, one thing I like to do, and I've done this with uh, some of the, the uh, you know, working filmmakers I've dealt with like Aronofsky is I'll look at what they've done and I'll think of a movie that expresses some aspect of it. And I'll ask him to look at that movie. Mm. For instance, uh, when uh, Darren was working on his movie, Noah, about uh, Noah's Ark, um, I, I saw that and uh, read the script. And I said, you should look at a John Ford movie called The Searchers. Mm. And he had never seen it, but I had him look at that because it had the similar uh, sort of spine of following um, a, a character who was a little bit sinister and who was, you know, the hero, but also a dangerous dark force that was, you know, uh, kind of psychotic. And that fit with his idea of Noah, that Noah was confused and God's instructions weren't clear. And uh, he thought in Darren's vision, he, Noah thought he was supposed to kill his own family to get rid of the stain of humanity and let the world be just for the animals. Um, so, so he looked at, at uh, the searchers and uh, found a lot of useful parallels there and gave him some insights. So that's one kind of uh, homework that I have people do. Um, and, and the other thing is uh, just a piece of advice I heard from uh, the late director, John Singleton. Um, he said when he was a film student, he wanted to be a director, but he thought that's never gonna happen. So I'll be a screenwriter. And uh, he made a choice about screenwriting. He said, um, if I'm just gonna be the screenwriter, I'm also gonna be the director. When, when I write the script, I'm the director. And so I don't listen to any of this stuff that people try to tell you that you shouldn't put in song titles and you shouldn't uh, put in camera directions and you, know, you shouldn't tell the uh, stunt coordinator how to do his job. You know, the, all these kind of barriers are set up for you. And he said, I tell them everything. I tell them what music is playing. I tell them what it smells like and you know, he, he, he just had that attitude. I'm the director and I love that. So I give people that uh, encouragement and freedom to uh, tell it's, it's right now you are the director. It's your story. So 
make the best of it. And that's true from the consumer point of view. As a reader who was reading thousands of scripts every year, I uh, appreciated that when somebody directed the picture for me and it just came to life on the page. So that's my, uh, my best encouragement for writers is go ahead and be the director. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.